Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and my guest today, I'm very pleased to have, is Mr. Charles White, Sr. Welcome to the show, Mr. White. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I really am. I know you are, uh, well, you're many things. You're a community leader, to say the least, in Buckingham County, Virginia. Uh, and you're also uh, the editor-in-chief of the Informat. Is that the correct title? That's correct. Okay. Tell us a little about the informant before we uh, go on. Well, it's a little six-page or eight-page sometimes newspaper that um, is primarily um, African-American paper, but not entirely. Uh It is now 28 years old, and um, I got the idea from a cousin of mine, Randolph White, mm-hmm. who published the Charlottesville Albemarle Tribune. And uh, on one occasion, he, uh, I had written two books on African-Americans in Buckingham. And uh, he called me in to want to do a story on that first book. And uh, I went to the scene and tried the book, and we talked for a while. I asked him about his newspaper, and he went on and on about it. And as I got ready to leave, he said, boy, why don't you start a newspaper over in Buckingham? Uh-huh. Well, I thought that was kind of out of my line or whatnot. But on my way back home, I began to think about this thing, and I said, why not? Exactly. So I got it. I started it within, um, it was the, the, that day was the day that uh, Reagan was shot. Oh, my goodness, that does go back. Yeah, but uh, the paper actually, the first printing of it was in June. Uh-huh. Uh, after I had gotten some things together and really decided what I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, people took to it, and we've been at it now for 28 years. <laughs> 20, did you say 20 or 28? Either would be impressive. 28 years. 20, 28 years. 
So you've publishing your own newspaper in Buckingham County yeah. called The Informant yeah. for 28 yeah, but years. It all, but it goes to 48 different states. Wow. Yeah. You know... And, uh, I, well, I was just going to say, Mr. White, uh, and again to remind everyone, I'm speaking with Charles White Sr., who is uh, many things that are all good for the Commonwealth of Virginia, specifically in Buckingham County, Virginia. He is my guest today, and uh, if if he only did his newspaper, that would be something. But there's more to tell. I wonder, uh, first of all, uh, Mr. White, how long have you lived in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and how many of those years were have you resided in Buckingham County? Well, I've lived in Virginia. I'm 85 years old. I'm almost 86. Wow. I, I came to Virginia in uh, 1932 as an infant, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, first to Stanton. Virginia, and mm -hmm. then to Buckingham, I think it was that same year, but I grew in grouping for and I left uh, there in uh, 1951 to go to college, mm -hmm. and after college, I came to Buckingham. Mm -hmm. I had not planned to stay in Buckingham. I actually told my father I would stay here one year. Mm -hmm. I was a building trade teacher. I hadn't planned to teach, and I never thought I'd be living in a rural area like this. <laughs> and, uh, was it a woman? I told my father, yeah, I told my father I was going to stay a year, and about a month later, I carried this young lady from Buckingham home <laughs> to meet my family. <laughs> and of course, my dad wanted to know how uh, was I still planned on leaving Buckingham, and he never let me forget that. <laughs> <laughs> It happens. It happens. Let me tell you. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm a New Yorker and still am a New Yorker. I live there sort of a, sometimes when I can get up there and I work in D.C. a great deal. But the same thing happened to me. I came to Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, actually to see a concert. I was just going to see a concert, not even a year. And a uh, young lady was there who uh, attended the concert, and I met her because she was coming to see it because the wife of her co-worker at the uh, University of Virginia wanted a company, and we all met in the parking lot after. I knew the conductor, and and here we are, you and I in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Women will yeah, do I it. Know a lot of people that way, yes. yes. Well, you know, I I want us to. There's just so much, and I and I don't want us to rush because we can always do this again in the future, but. You've been, obviously, in Buckingham County, Virginia, for a long time. Give us some, those of us who don't know the Commonwealth that well, where does Buckingham County sort of fit in the Commonwealth of Virginia? It's right in the center of the state. There, there you go. Actually, yeah, actually, the spot, Bob Rush, here in Buckingham, mm -hmm. on Route 60 and uh, 24, the spot that marks the geographic center of Virginia is about five miles from my house at this place I just mentioned, Mount Rush. Ah. At the actual center wow. of the state of Virginia. I didn't know that. I'm glad I asked the question. I guess I should tell uh, our audience, I didn't just sort of pick Charles White Sr. out of the blue. I had the great pleasure of meeting Mr. White not terribly long ago. The uh, Preservation Virginia contacted me about 
uh, going down and seeing the area because of the proposed uh, uh, gas pipeline that uh, Nelson County has been spared, we think, because of a what is it, salamander and squirrel sort of combination and, and now zeroing in on Buckingham uh, County. And Preservation Virginia gave me a call and said, you know, uh, because I'm in the media, would you come down and look and see what you think and maybe write about it? Well, I thought I'd go down, take a couple of pictures and write an article, but I met Mr. Charles White Sr. and his wife and his friends, and it was a most, uh, it was enjoyable to say the least, but it was also incredibly informative. Uh, Mr. White not only has a newspaper, he, he draws maps of of the area and that tells us where historical sites including lost to some ignored by others uh, black cemeteries but you know what one thing i want to ask you next mr white if you will something you said when i first met you that really hit me and i'd like you to explain it to to those listening how do african americans name their neighborhoods and schools do you remember what you said to me i mean you just yeah. said it because it made sense to you but i had never heard that and it was so it was yeah. like well you tell us well most black cemetery, uh, black neighborhoods is by the church mm -hmm. now right this minute i'm at a funeral at baptist union church mm -hmm. and this is the baptist union neighborhood uh -huh. that has the smaller neighborhoods like there are certain little towns like Staten Town, Gregory Town. These are where a lot of families you know have conjugated. Yes. So this is the Baptist Union uh, neighborhood. Everyone knows it's between Dillwyn and New Canton. I live in the Union Grove neighborhood, the, the Union Grove Church, you know, the Lord Buckingham Courthouse. Mm -hmm. Now most blacks and our uh, the white folks. Some of them, and it's a little different. Now, I found out that I lived also in in the Union. As I live in the Union, a hill, Union Grove neighborhood, I'm living in Burntwood neighborhood. Ah. And some others, it's the Glenmore neighborhood. Hmm. So quite often, with the white folks, their name, you know, they name it. The names for the communities is sometimes somewhat different from the blacks. But explain that difference. That's what I found so intriguing. Yeah, now as you may have a Salem neighborhood, but to the most white folks, it's the uh, Glenmore neighborhood. So because everyone called Dillwyn, the little town we have here. If you live in Dillwyn, everybody says Dillwyn, you know, neighborhood. But most blacks when they refer to the neighborhood is by the church. So it's it's the and so Way back in the old days, the school was often named after the same as the church. So, so in my neighborhood, we had a Union Grove church and we had a Union Grove school. And then, therefore, uh, the Union Grove neighborhood and community. Yeah, right, right. I, I don't know why that struck me. Uh, so it seems like a, you know, a normal, natural, everyday thing. But for some reason, when you just sort of mentioned that in passing, when we were in your home and you were showing us the maps, I thought, not that I'm an expert on how anybody names uh, their neighborhood or community or streets for that matter, but it struck me, it says a great deal about a people if they yeah. choose to name their neighborhood and their schools 
by the name of the church. I guess, I guess uh, that in itself is enough, because I guess one then asks, well, how did the church get named? Well, <laughs> that's something, uh, I don't really know a whole lot about Now, a lot of the churches were named after, uh, named for Bible characters, uh, uh-huh. you know, and Bible, Bible characters and, 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 and places in the Bible. I got and, you. Uh, the Baptist Union, I don't know how it got its name. All I know is about how the church came into existence because of a white church not far away in 1867 had roughly nearly 500 members and roughly 300 of them were black. Hmm. And after slavery, they had a little problem there with the blacks had worshiping in a bush harbor. And this church had two black deacons, the Spring mm. Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the deacons wanted the pastor to go out in the Rush Arbor, which is what the blacks worshipped in, those that couldn't get in the church, which was most of them. Uh-huh. And uh, the pastor wouldn't do that, so they decided they'd pull the black members out. And they started Baptist Union Church, what I'm looking at now. Uh-huh. And of course, for Baptist Union, several other churches sprang out from them. I see. Some of the black churches had problems way back and people pulled out and started some of these churches in the in the in the close of the neighborhood, you know. And and you say this problem actually came after slavery. So after, after the slavery. slaves were freed this the, the... A lot of the black folk here were shocked to find out that their church actually the founders of that church actually left a white local white church uh-huh. a, a church that was close, not far away uh-huh. and that's a long story uh, yes you know that's, we, that's, a, that's a story unto itself <laughs> yes which which of course um is a part of the story i mean i guess it's the same story of how segregated schools came about um yeah, yeah. I, I can remember even in my lifetime um, when i would um go with my mother, which didn't happen terribly often, but I went, took her one time, I said, I want to go to see where you grew up and see where you went to school, and she showed me the school, a big, beautiful school, you know, and I asked her how that was, and uh, she said, well, you know, it was segregated back then, and I, it was, it was, I don't know, I mean, (laughs) my parents are very liberal Democrats, I love them, they love everybody, they were in church all the time, this, the whole idea of finding out they went to a, a segregated school or church was um, was was a surprise. I mean, it was the way it was, but still, it yeah. was it and was. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. And and that that's for sure. You know, um, I know we're all over the place, sir. But you know, one talks to you. It's it's all of history. It's uh, that's available. And um, so forgive me because I love history and. As I said to you before we came on the air, I'm not a historian. I have taught history only to find out after I left the classroom that I really didn't teach history. I I taught a piece of it, uh, the piece that I was taught. And so I think ever since then I've been sort of on a mission to find the other half. But there were laws, uh, for instance, in in Virginia that that even when um, the Supreme Court said, you know, an end to segregation, the governor of Virginia 
actually closed uh, certain schools so they wouldn't have to integrate. Tell us a bit about that. Segregation case that reached the Supreme Court. Yes. Brown versus Board of Education. Yes. That was a several case, and one of them, those cases, was Prince Edward County. Mm-hmm. Our case of Davis versus uh, Prince Edward Board of Education. And uh, when the Supreme Court ruled that segregation was wrong, they eventually, after the the NAACP got into it. Mm-hmm. Prince Edward actually closed its schools yes. for five years. Wow. And the black kids, for the most part, were actually locked out of that school. And I actually looked at the padlocks on the gates and the mm. doors. And it was just, you know, sorry to see that, you know, it's hard to look at something like that. Yes. And here I'm a teacher myself. Oh. Yes, yes. And, um, here in Buckingham, the teachers were told not to accept, and principals, teachers and principals were told not to accept any students from Prince Edward County, and he was not going to let any of those kids come here to Buckingham go to school. And actually, three top teachers in in Prince Edward County, next door now, mm-hmm. Buckingham needed. The course that needed those teachers, one was math and one was history. I forget what the other one taught. But anyway, those people had to, uh, were only 20 miles from Buckingham mm-hmm. schools. Yes. And these people, had, these teachers had to go from Farmville to Charlottesville to teach. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, Charlottesville was 40 miles from Billman. Yes. So they had, to, they had to drive, you know, 15 more miles every day to teach. And but they couldn't stop here in Buckingham. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> but Buckingham, but at that time, you know, everybody was upset about those desegregating schools, and there were some horrible things taught, mentioned by some of the white people here. Yeah. One man said he'd rather see his children dead than go to school with Black folks. Oh my heavens! Yeah, exactly. I understand. I hear you, yeah. Mr. White. It's um, uh, and every time I hear stories like this, especially if on on the rare occasion I get to speak with someone like you, who really has such a a grasp of the history, both quantitatively as as well as qualitatively, it it never ceases to astound me. We so many of us brag about the exceptionalism of America and we're great at this and great at that and, we're, and yet you uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and we're going to go to break in my lifetime and not that I'm a kid but, but still in my lifetime we lived in Washington D.C. and on the one rare occasion my parents allowed me to come down for a couple of weeks in the summer and stay with what we called our country kin and I think it was Bowling Green, Virginia. And because the big, the, the cousin from the city was coming to town, their parents allowed them to skip a day working on the farm and to go to a movie. And the movie you had to drive miles from the farm to get to, you know, I wasn't used to that, but to get to the, 
this uh, movie theater, and I can't even remember what was playing, but I do remember this. I, uh, as a as with my parents, when I went to the movies, I could never go sit in the balcony because they said only the bad kids sat up there and threw things down, you know, and you can't go up there. So I never sat in a balcony, you know. So naturally, here I am in the country. My parents aren't around. My cousins were going to go to the movies. And I see a sign that says to the balcony. So I get my ticket and I start to run for the balcony. I'm, I'm free at last. I can sit in the balcony. And my cousins grabbed me, practically tackled me to the ground and said, you can't go up there. And now I know you know why, but not all our yeah. audience does. I ju- they just told me only black people could sit up there. And yeah. I, I, to this day, don't get that. But anyway, we're going to stop on that. I'm not going to say sad note. I'm going to say true note. That reality needs to be reminded every time we forget and things happen in, still in our cities that are uh, incredibly shameful and painful. Uh, we need to remember that uh, it's not that long ago and um, and fix it. But we're going to be right back. We have a lot more to talk about with Mr. Charles White, Sr., editor-in-chief of The Informant and uh, a school teacher, community leader, to say the least, in Buckingham County, Virginia, the center of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And when we come back, we want to talk about the legacy of Carter G. Woodson, If anyone can tell us that, it's Charles White Sr., our guest today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Want to see a real scary movie with the emphasis on real? Check out Citizen Four. Edward Snowden wanted an honest reporter to help reveal top secret papers to the American public. Identifying himself only as Citizen Four, he contacted prize-winning documentarian Laura Poitras. She promptly packed up her cameras and flew off to Hong Kong with fellow journalist Glenn Greenwald of The Guardian. Citizen Four is a surprising documentary focusing on Greenwald's now-famous hotel room interview with Snowden. Surprising because the viewer is ushered into a genuinely dangerous real-life thriller in real time, complete with ominously ringing telephones, mystery fire alarms, and the ongoing threat of discovery. Even more of a surprise is Snowden's apparent candidness and evident concern for his country, in particular the rights and freedoms of all Americans. Not the super spy traitor many might expect. Snowden comes across as an ordinary little guy having a genuine crisis of conscience and courageously acting to protect us from a government intent on eroding our rights and privacy in the name of national security. Still, the camera never asks us to believe Snowden's words or actions. Poitras and Greenwald merely ask us to weigh what we see and decide for ourselves. And weigh it we must, because Citizen Four is indeed scary stuff. Citizen Four, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest again today is Charles White Sr. He is the editor-in-chief of The Informant. He is a community leader, very politically active, I think that's probably true to say, in Buckingham County, Virginia, advocating for justice, equality, etc., but also for other things that we might not 
think of that are pressing now with the proposed pipeline that is coming to uh, Buckingham County? I think, um, as I understand from people I've met in Buckingham County, it's not just the pipeline, the gas pipeline, but the compressor station. Who knows what that's going to give off in the way of methane gas and noise and disturb what is really quite a rural historical, by the way, but rural uh, countryside with lots of wildlife and uh, as well as humans who who live there because they wanted a beautiful countryside with some historical significance. Is that overstating it, Mr. White? No, it's not. The pumping station, is the actual compression state, but they've been called it a pumping station. Oh, yes. But that, that's the thing that's causing the problem. We have four pipelines here in Buckingham, uh-huh. and uh, they are no, no, no problem, but it's that uh, compression station. Yes. And it's located, it's located, you know, in my neighborhood. Oh, goodness. Yeah. You know, and uh, people are very upset about it. But the people who are most affected by it are ones that are, you know, so concerned and want to see it somewhere else. Yes. Uh, and they... I want to stop it, but you know that's looks like me. I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, just yesterday, my son and a friend of his, they're both hunters, and mm-hmm. they carried me to a site of a slave cemetery, large slave cemetery. Yes, that's located very, very close to that pipeline that's coming through and the pumping station. And uh, of course, right much concern, and uh, in meetings that a group called Friends of Buckingham, yes. they have looked at a lot of material videos and listened to speakers uh-huh. talking about how dangerous these things are, about the uh, toxic gases and whatnot that they emit, these yes. compressor stations emit. That's, that's the concern. It just seems like quite a legitimate concern if these, if this, as you say, this center, whether you call it a pump station or a compressor station, it's where all the pipes come together and there is the danger of pollution to not only environment but human environment as well as animal. And, and uh, as, as we touched on, historical sites. Um, many of the places I was taken to when I visited Buckingham County the people who were guiding me could only point and say, over there in the woods, there is a... Yeah. So these th- these cemeteries, this history, has been so ignored uh, by developers in particular. I think I even told you this story. Uh, I, I went to visit um, someone for whom I have power of attorney and, and some responsibility to look after, in any case, uh, in St. Elizabeth's Hospital. While I was waiting for them to bring him down... I just, you know, people love history. St. Elizabeth certainly is historical. Um, and, and I started walking around the grounds, and I found a bent-over fence and overgrown grass, and I went back behind there, and there were tombstones, one of which had that he was a Congressional Medal of Honor from the Civil War. And I went, holy smoke, What? why is this just lying here like this? And I had a guest who specializes in finding old cemeteries and documenting them. And she said, oh, those were probably 
uh, patients of various wars who were suffering from uh, what we now have, you know, medical uh, names for, depression and uh, what have you, and schizophrenia. Um, we used to just call that battle fatigue for many years. But she said yes, and if they didn't have family to speak up for them or to take them home, they were used uh, for experimentation, medical experimentation. And when they died, they were buried out back. And now we, here we are, Buckingham County, Virginia, and there's a pipeline and a compressor station that is threatening black history, cemeteries. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you do about that? What can we do? Cemeteries, uh, they're being uh, exhumed and moved to other sites. And uh, the uh, pipeline people uh, you know, avoid them as near as possible, go around them, mm-hmm. try to avoid them. But they see that the pipeline is something that's necessary. And of course, the uh, federal government and state of Virginia and Buckingham County's fathers have seen it necessary, that is necessary, and so they have given that okay. Mm. Now, being effective or not okay. Yes, exactly. Have you ever been a, a part of the political uh, establishment in Buckingham County? Have you been on the um, county board, for instance, or has that not been available? No, I, I ran for the board of supervisors twice, unsuccessfully. Mm, mm-hmm. I have not been on any board or anything. That's the only thing I can say. I've been vice president of the Buckingham Voters League for, I guess, 25 or 30 years and almost that same amount of time at the local branch in AACP. Wow. But I've never held public office, elected office of that kind. You're like Mahatma Gandhi, never elected, but certainly having a, a tremendous impact on all those who meet you, including me, by the way. How about, let, let's, you know, even the most inspiring people like yourself get their inspiration from somewhere. I'm sure your church family, etc. But can you tell us historically, how does Carter G. Woodson impact on your life as an individual, but also on the lives of, well, not just black Americans, but all Americans, and certainly in the Commonwealth of Virginia, who many people may not even know who Carter G. Woodson is, and yet it's a perfect time of the year to be talking about him. Tell us yeah. tell us about him. Well, a lot of people in Buckingham until a few years ago didn't know who Carter G. Woodson was. Mm. The high school that I first uh, worked, where I first worked was Carter G. Woodson High School. Mm. And some of the students there, this was a segregated school, some of the students there had no idea why their school was named College G. Woodson. Oh, gee. And College G. Woodson came out of that neighborhood. They knew nothing about it. Say it, say it, say it. Yes. So and that's what bothered me. And um, we've done a lot that people know about college but you know, I think most of the people in Buckingham now know, know about him. And so he was born here in Buckingham on December 19th, 1875. Mm-hmm. His parents were former slaves. 
His father had served in the Civil War as a soldier, a, a Union soldier. Mm-hmm. Served under General Armstrong Costa. Wow. So then on their maneuvers around Charlottesville and Scottsville, and uh, according to Carlos E. Wilson, he witnessed the surrender of Robert E. Lee at wow. Appomattox. Wow. And he came back to, now he was from business in Blue Banner. Yes. His father, father was James Henry Wilson, and uh, he crossed the river and found the Buckingham girl like I did. <laughs> And he started and, uh, it, in 1915. He started the Association for the Study of, of uh, 
of Negro life. And uh, his that was, uh, yes, yeah, that's the organization. Yes. It's now called the Association for the uh, Study of African American Life and History. Yes. At first, it was where Negro was used. In yes. That. Yes. But um, in 1926, he started Black History Week. Yes, and that's the thing, and 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 no, yeah. and everyone and noticed I, that Mr. White is saying. I, I, I remember, I remember that so well. Uh huh. However, however, in my paper being printed tomorrow, uh-huh. I have a story of my principal, elementary school and early high school, who was an exponent of African American history, mm-hmm. and he. I went to him in eighth grade. He taught me eighth grade mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I can remember every day he came to class. He checked the roll. He'd ask us, ask us, he, we had uh, studied our lesson. Of course, you had better say yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he um, then would give us a five minute lecture on some days of black history that we were totally, I couldn't believe. Mm. Things that blacks had invented and things that they participated in. Yes. And uh, we just, and one day I asked him, why wasn't this in our history books? And he mm. told me why. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he sort of got me very interested in African-American history. Yes. And then there was another teacher uh, last month, I sat beside this teacher mm-hmm. and put him forward, still alive, and very much alive. <laughs> She's 90 some years old. Wow. But anyway, she had a the class. She told us one day she wants to write a paper, she taught English, to write a paper on somebody from Clifton Forge black person who had you know, done something special. Yes. Well, we hadn't heard anything about doing anything special. We had some teachers. We even had two black doctors mm-hmm. and two seminary-trained uh, ministers. Yes. But she wanted something else, something that, something that we didn't know anything about. Mm. And uh, most of us, and she told us how to go about finding it, to talk to some of the older people in the neighborhood. Yes. And they were telling us things that uh, just simply blew us away. I found out that the uh, first African-American woman to receive a PhD in zoology hmm. was from my neighborhood. And oh. I had never heard of me. Oh, <laughs> I had never goodness. heard of <laughs> Wow. And uh, that, you know, and uh, we learned the things about blacks who participated in that. Wars. We've been Buffalo soldiers, and I was learning some history because I grew up here uh, around six slaves. Mm. My great grandmother was an ex-slave, uh-huh. and uh, I heard her talking with some of other ex-slave friends about slavery. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what they were talking about. I could talking about people being sold and. Talk about overseer, 
one point I thought they were discussing baseball because they were talking about Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yankees coming. You know, I didn't know what they were talking about. Mm. And you dare not ask a question mm. back in the lead. Do not interrupt older people when they were talking. You'd get killed. That's <laughs> true. But I just remember saying that a few words and a few sentences that they made. I remember my grandmother has mentioned that her, she had a brother that left to go to some war. Uh-huh. And uh, he never returned. He left with his master, and neither one of them came back. Gee. And I heard the word, word, word silver war. I uh. thought it was on metal silver war. I yeah. thought it was like no Exactly. But I'm glad you remember and are sharing with us because uh, yeah. one, one of the things that you know we touched on is that uh, Carter G. Woodson, uh, in 1926, he, he established the, the first Black History Week. It was only a week then, but, right. it, but he did it to coincide uh, with the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And, yeah, and yes, and then uh, it was like 26 years after Carter G. Woodson died, Black History Week became Black History Month. Not right then. No, that didn't happen until 1975. Ah, yes, yes, that, that's what I meant. Twenty, twenty some years after his death, but yeah, um, that happened. The first announcement that was made that uh, was made by Dr. J. Rupert Pycock. Uh-huh. who was then the executive secretary. And at that time, the Standard Oil Company had put up money, had given, uh, granted money for the association to establish historical markers honoring blacks throughout the country. Uh-huh. And the association was in charge of it. Now, the first place they wanted to put a marker was here in Buckingham at College of Wilson's birth site. Oh, wow. And so, so uh, uh, a local branch of the Afro-American Lightness Society was formed. The G.F. Harris, the principal of the former college, he was in high school, was the president, and I was the vice president. Oh. And uh, we, uh, I, and I built the little marker for him on his birth site. Oh, wow. And, um, we had a ceremony, a service here mm-hmm. on that on that day, on his birthday, December nineteenth, nineteen seventy five. And at that celebration, Dr. Piker told the world that we would no longer be celebrating Black History Week. It would be Black History Month. Wow. And so the building that, that was ceremony was held is building I just passed it a while ago. And um, so, so that, the other day, we want it, we want it, we want it. Our local group now wants to upgrade that site to more, be more than what, what, what we want it to, uh-huh. to be. And so we're trying, to, we're trying to raise $25,000 to really make that site what we want it to be. And that's in Buckingham Which, County? Yeah, in, in Buckingham County and New Canton. New Canton, Virginia, yes. Yeah, that's, the, that's an area of the county. And how does one make a contribution? Is there a website, or how does one become a part of recognizing uh, this site? Well, they could, uh, we don't have a website. Uh, 
right at this point, but we are getting ready to put one together. Okay. Make a, just make a contribution to this, our secretary for our local branch. Her name is Connie Nash. Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, Nash, N-A-S-H. And uh, for New Canada, Virginia, she'll get it. Okay. And also, yeah. if at uh, any point you get an address... You, you and I can talk again after this show, and I will make certain that that address is posted along when we post the show. So there's that possibility, too. And, and finally, I think you told me that Denzel Washington is, or, or his relatives anyway, are from your area in Buckingham County? That's right. His father grew up here in Buckingham, and I, and I just passed coming here to where I am right now. I passed the home in which he was living when he died. Oh, wow. His father was named Denzel Washington also. I, I met Denzel um, in in New York after something uh, we had attended. Yeah, his father I... didn't, Denzel didn't grow up yet. Denzel uh, grew up in uh, Mount Vernon, New York. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also and nice. So his, father, his father eventually came back, and this is where he died. Wow. And he has uh, cousins here now. Mm-hmm. I'm at a funeral, and I'll probably see some of them when they, when they come out. I'm sitting out here in that car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the you taking that. Actually, uh-huh. that's actually I've seen him do one a few times down in town, right above where his father lived. Ah. People actually saw him. Wow. Well, I I appreciate your taking a call, especially as, as you are at a funeral. I didn't realize we might be interrupting that for you, but... Uh, uh, not interrupting in the <laughs> Okay. Well, we do. We have run out of time. I do hope to uh, speak again many times with you, Mr. Charles White Sr. Again, let me remind you, everyone, uh, he is many things all good for the Commonwealth of Virginia, Buckingham County in particular, the center of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Among other things, he is the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, The Informant, and there are uh, lots of things trying to to go to preserve to restore black history in the area but also to make people aware of uh, what the pipeline can do to the people living there and their history and their environment i mean there are many issues and we will get you information on how you can donate to helping out these causes in which um, charles white senior is involved Mr. White, it's been a pleasure talking to you again, and I promise you we will do it many times, okay? Thank you. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure, too. Bye now, and all the best to you. Thank you. Stay with us, as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Our brain, curiously, is both strong and fragile, capable of complex rational thought one minute and the next susceptible to stress, anxiety, or other influences that can send the whole system into a functional nosedive. The world was shocked and dismayed by the unanticipated results of a notorious 1971 psychology experiment intended to explore this duality. The Stanford Prison Experiment, a prize-winning film directed by Kyle Patrick Alvarez, reveals how it went much further, exposing the tendency for sadistic behavior in the prison system. 
Dr. Philip Zimbardo and his team of psychology grad students choose participants to be involved in an isolated simulation. Half are assigned as prisoners and the other half as guards. And the experiment begins, innocuously enough. But in surprisingly little time, the guard's sadistic abuse of power becomes more and more difficult for both the prisoners and Zimbardo's team to contend with. People get hurt, lives get scarred. Many of us may have heard the real life story, but this terrific little thriller is a remarkable journey propelled toward greatness by a dynamite ensemble cast led by Billy Crudup. A disturbing reminder of the more troubling aspects of our own human nature, perhaps it can help to protect us from the darkness within. The Stanford Prison Experiment. Not in theaters, discovery through rental. We hope you enjoyed the Indie Film Minute. Visit us at IndieFilmMinute.com to share your thoughts, suggest films, or even to submit your own review. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Echoes of truth despite reflections of wild boars. Every time I allow my ever-ready-for-adventure Chipu to escape the confines of home, her first action as she races into the outside world is to release an impressive, ear-piercing announcement of her taking the field, at breakneck speed right to the edge of her outer boundary. No electric fence nor wall is necessary to maintain her power over the lay of the land, for it is her presumed raison d'etre. Regardless of race, creed, gender, or talent, Oscar-like awards are subjectively dealt out over lifetimes, though admittedly more often it's hearts with a ravenous queen of spades than a winning hand from MSNBC for Melissa Harris-Perry. The deck, two stacked in Wall Street boardrooms by bankers producing sequels to The Big Short, too small to prevail, they stuff 99% of humanity into the envelope, please, in the outsourcing room, until the Oscars of life are awarded to those who run the race like Jesse Owens, the ever-increasing global danger is our failure to imagine beyond the hyperbole of self-serving politicians, some with ambitions as destructive as an olympically defeated master race dictator like Karl Rove's puppeteer. Most often, life isn't an Oscar-winning film, especially when we choose choices like Ted Cruz's Garden of Eden and the lowest-hanging fruits of justice, like senators refusing to consider replacing a deceased Supreme Court justice who preached once its original ink dried, the U.S. Constitution died. Despite our Founding Fathers' lack of crystal ball expertise and inability to anticipate a bridge of spies between the FBI, Apple, and Hillary, Franklin nonetheless suggested the possibility that those who give up their liberty for more security neither deserve liberty nor security. Unlike the Martian, there is no bringing us home to greatness unless we are a nation forever progressing forward. On Oscar Sunday, decisions, limited only by lack of diversity, are announced amidst tears, laughter, applause, speeches, regret, and the politics of blackout boycott. On Super Tuesday, decisions, limited only by the will of the people to demand greater value for their vote, will be announced amidst jeers and cheers, speeches of concession, and for those herded and huddled by packs for regression, 
the politics of hate. In our 2016 elections, we the people are contesting via a personification of our built-up resentment, a coronation, and a Mad Max escapee from the Arrogance Asylum. So, which will it be for us January 20th, 2017? Revenge on the We Built That Gang? Decades-old recipient of constant onslaught from every side, now potentially FBI-investigated, Dynasty Next? Huffing and puffing bores salivating over undermining our exceptional law of the land, the Golden Rule. This election, though not a feel-good movie, is based on the truth and lies we tell ourselves when the lights are low. Produced by corporatism, directed by partisans, and starring those who vote and those who avoid the spotlight of civic responsibility. Nevertheless, the revenant self within is beckoned by the peace that comes from surviving the American saga, now recognizing right from wrong, justice and injustice, equality and discrimination, economic opportunity and income disparity. Can't we see the dishonesty in those who shout volumes of vagueness, provoking violence among those most vulnerable to the fear and frustration that accompanies feeling being passed over, forgotten, or ignored? To the degree we are mesmerized by the least our political system has to offer, we echo 1930s Germany in 2016 politics behind the politics of ratings-crazed media, rented lobbyists bribing career politicians, and ranting demagogues. Until we stop fearing progress, oil-slicked money-changers will remain the greatest terror threat to our environment our rainbow, and our melting pot. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.